As I'm sure you are aware, there are quite a few scientific issues where the public doesn't have trust in what the scientists are saying. Some that come to mind are climate change, that it is caused by human activity, the anti-vaccine movement, and recently now with COVID-19, the issue about wearing masks. What has really gone wrong here, or at least part of it, is scientists haven't been doing a great job of communicating the science. I have a few science communicators coming up. We actually just talked to Christina Lin, who is a wildlife biologist, but she also does science communication with her YouTube channel in her free time. And like I mentioned, we have a couple of more coming up on the podcast. So today I wanted to talk about science communication and how science works overall, because what you're taught in school is really not what science is. And it really didn't take me until I went to graduate school to fully understand the scientific process. So that's what we're going to be talking about today. And I have changed my career to be more of a science communication role. I'm going to talk a little bit about that at the end, too. Hi, I'm Dr. Stephanie Shuttler, a wildlife biologist who's learned throughout her career studying animals that science alone cannot save species. We need you. In the Fancy Scientist podcast, you'll learn about fun animals, conservation tips, and science advice all while breaking stereotypes about what a scientist looks like. Let's get started. First, let's start talking about what science is. In school, you were taught, or at least I was taught, that science classes are really about memorizing things or working through a series of problems. When I'm thinking of that, I'm thinking more of my chemistry and physics classes. But when it came to biology, it really was all memorization. I guess we did have to do the Hardy-Weinberg equilibrium. So that was some calculation. But if I think of like our taxonomic units or ecology, evolution, you're just memorizing different things. In school, labs were also a really big part of science class. And The goal of the labs were really for students to learn by doing hands-on activities, but I didn't really understand the point of the labs. They were also there to show how scientists work. If you remember the scientific method, which had to do with coming up with a hypothesis and collecting data, analyzing the data and writing a discussion, that was really the point of labs too, to go through the whole scientific method. But whenever we did those labs, we pretty much always did them right after we learned a concept. So we would learn a concept in lecture, and then we would do the lab to demonstrate the concept. And frequently, we would have to come up with a hypothesis. So we would take the question we were asking and form it in a hypothesis and make predictions. But because we already learned about it, I knew what was supposed to happen, which kind of, in my mind, defeated the point of doing the laboratory experience. In some cases, we did 
in some cases, we did do labs where we didn't know what was going to happen. And we were just sort of like given this protocol of what we were going to do and set up this scenario. And I didn't have any idea of like understanding how to predict what would happen or just any knowledge about it. And it just seemed like I was just following directions without really knowing anything. So this way of going through the lab just, I don't know, it just really confused me quite honestly. And I never liked lab, especially in college. I always felt like college lab was basically a race to see like who could do it the fastest in order to get out of class the fastest so you could leave early. Yeah. And I just, I just never learned a whole lot from labs, but I understand that people learn differently. But for me, I really learned a lot more in lecture and and reading books. Anyway, You're given the impression from school that science is really just about those concepts and memorizing them. And when you're tested, you are tested on those concepts. So we're so it really wasn't until graduate school that I learned what science was. And in reality, science is really about asking questions that you don't know the answer to. And going through the scientific process, but you're collecting data to answer those new questions. You're doing something that has never been done before. Really, a big part of science has to do with coming up with these questions. They have to be new, but they also have to be doable. I don't know if that's a good word for it, but it has to be something that you you can do. I mean, there's a lot of different really cool questions you could come up with, but you don't have the time or resources or money to carry out a project. So it has to be a feasible, that's a great word, experiment to carry out. So a big part of science is really reading the literature, and I'm going to explain what that is, but reading previous studies to understand what has been done before and build off of it with your new study or experiment. It's really all about coming up with original questions. And if you go back to school, we were taught memorization and we were praised for memorization and my classes for most of my classes, there was only one right answer. We were tested in traditional means with Scantron tests and multiple choice answers. And if we asked questions, some teachers actually got annoyed with it and they didn't like that constant pushback. But really asking questions makes you an amazing scientist. And we all start off asking questions. If you think about children, they are constantly asking questions about anything that's around them, but especially around the natural world when they get outside. And then slowly as we go through the school system, we kind of get the impression that so many things have been solved and that we know the answers to so many different things. When I worked with teachers and with their students, so K through 12 uh, teachers and their middle school students, they really were surprised to know that scientists didn't have all of the answers. And that was something I really emphasized to the teachers that I work with is that there's so much left out there to be discovered. Even in common areas of places that we live, For example, at North Carolina State University, one of the professors that was my advisor on the postdoc 
that I worked on, he had research studying ants within the medians of New York City. So it doesn't get any more urban than that. And in terms of like what you see every day. So there's still these discoveries out there. People think that you have to go deep down to the rainforest, to these remote jungle to these remote jungles to make all of these discoveries, but that's not true. There's actually a lot of things that are not that well studied that we live pretty close to. When I went to graduate school and I had to come up with original research questions for my PhD, I really struggled with it because it was extremely hard for me to get back to that curious side. I just kind of accepted so many things were solved in the in our world, that so many people knew the answers to so many different things. And I just assumed, especially with these common species and in areas where people lived, that so many of these things would be studied. But that is not true. Therefore, to be a good scientist, you really have to be good asking questions. There is more that goes into it, too. Because of the way science functions now, you have to think of questions that can get funding as well, because you're going to need to have resources to be able to carry out the experiments or studies. In the United States, there are many different funding sources as well as internationally, but the main ones for science are the National Science Foundation and the National Institute of Health. And the health one is obvious, is pretty obvious. They care about medical research and, and studies related to, to human health or overall health, how we're all kind of interconnected with one another. But the National Science Foundation, all of the studies have to be framed in a theoretical context. So when I did my research on on forest elephants for my PhD, I couldn't say I just wanted to study forest elephants and get funding to study forest elephants because there's not a lot of known by them. I had to frame my research in comparing the social structures of African forest elephants with African savanna elephants and make predictions about what we know about social structure and habitats and the influencing factors on how these two species would differ. So I'd had to put it in a more theoretical context. Unfortunately, science is really driven then by what those organizations want to fund. And they also have different divisions with them, different types of projects that they care about, but I'm getting way off track. Okay, you have your questions and you have your funding. The next steps then are to come up with methods and collect the data. If you are in a graduate program, you are going to have your advisors and committee help you with all of that. Now, they are not going to do the work for you at all. You are going to actually have to come up with all of it yourself, but they will push back in terms of questions and tell you when you are on the wrong track. So you go throughout, it can take years. In some fields, it probably takes less than that. But in our field, in ecology and wildlife biology, usually it's dependent on seasons and things always go wrong. Animals are unpredictable. Anyway, so it can take years and years to collect enough data to conduct a good study. Then you analyze the results and 
look at what you got, come up with conclusions, write discussions. You actually write a whole manuscript on it, which includes the different sections that we included in our school laboratory reports. So introduction, methods, results, and discussion. And the idea is that other scientists should be able to read it and replicate it exactly. Now, I think here is where the public doesn't understand how thorough the process is. You can't just do a study like that. If I were to do a study all by myself, although you usually don't, you almost always work with other collaborators and present it to the world somehow, it wouldn't carry much weight. And that does happen. For example, people in nonprofits, they don't have the time or incentive to actually more time. They There is an incentive, but it's mostly time that they don't have to publish these papers, which I'm going to explain next, they will then perhaps release it in a report. And it does become useful for understanding perhaps a species or an ecosystem. For example, for my forest elephant research, I did include some reports. But you really want it to be a full-blown study. You really want to have you really want to submit it to a scientific publication and have it reviewed by your peers. The next step in this process, once you have your manuscript written, is you're going to submit it to a peer-reviewed journal. These are publications of original studies, and the way it works is you write a cover letter, you choose a journal that is appropriate for your research. The best journals for science are called Science, (laughs) that's the one, and the other one is called Nature. Those ones are the hardest to get into. Not all journals are created equally. Usually the more general title a journal name is, so, so Science, Nature, those are harder to get into. Whereas if you have a really specific journal name, such as something like the African Journal of Ecology, that is going to be less competitive than those more broad journals. So you're going to choose a journal that is going to be appropriate. And you might be thinking, why don't you just always submit your your study to nature or science? Well, it's really competitive. You have to meet a certain criteria and most likely your paper won't make it at all. So there's no point in submitting it. It has to be really novel or use a huge data set. Those are some of the types of studies that get into these journals. So you align your study according to what the journal wants in terms of format, and then you submit it. Then the editor receives your study and they look at it and they decide if they want to outright reject it, that it's it's not good or appropriate for the journal, or they send it out for peer review. What they do is they choose It's usually two to four. I pretty much always have three. I think a couple of times I've had two. A different scientist in your field. And these scientists agree to take on the paper for review. They read the manuscript in depth and they give their perspective on how they feel about the paper in terms of its 
contributions to science, like how important the study is, how relevant it is, and then also how well done the study is. Does it adhere to methods consistent with others in those fields? Are the data analysis methods appropriate? And these authors and these reviewers will actually send you back sometimes over 100 comments. Along with these comments, they also have to click in their review whether they reject the manuscript. This can still happen at this stage. You can get a rejection or whether they are willing to reconsider the manuscript with minor or major revisions. And was almost always, it's almost always major revisions. So then you get a list of all the different critiques, and it's anonymous unless the peer reviewer decides to include their name, which rarely happens. I think it's only happened to me maybe two or three times. And then you get a chance to do the revisions. For each of the comments, you have to respond to every single one of them individually. You you write a new cover letter with every single comment separately and then your response. Now, you don't have to agree to make the changes that they suggest, although usually it is the case. And whenever I'm doing a revision, I would say I accept probably around I need to 95% of the comments, but you can also challenge them. If you are certain that what you're doing is appropriate, meaning that there are other studies out there doing the same thing, that it's been validated, you can challenge their comment. And that's happened to me definitely for my paper on Dear Vigilance. I had to do some pretty major challenges to one of my peer reviewers. You therefore go through all these different comments and revise your manuscript and you send it back to the editor. The editor then sends it back to the same peer reviewers and they go through all of your comments. And the process then begins again. They reread the manuscript, they go over all of your comments and how you responded to them. And after they do this again, they send it back to the editor And at this point, they may say they accept the manuscript or they may still say that further revisions are needed. So this can happen sometimes at least two rounds, but sometimes um, three, four, sometimes it gets a little ridiculous. It keeps going back and forth. Then it eventually gets to a point where it's accepted. Usually if you're going through several rounds of review, that's going to mean it gets accepted, although not always. It's definitely happened to people where it's still been rejected. And then the paper gets published in the journal. So the thing that I think that people really don't know about science is that it goes through this series of like checks and balances. And then even when it's in the journal and published and out there, the scientists out there who are reading the paper still have the ability to to argue against the results and and potentially refute them. What this looks like is that they will write a commentary about it. And usually this happens when the original study forgets to include major studies out there already 
or they come up with a conclusion that doesn't quite make sense based on other studies published, but they may also do a follow-up study to counter the study. So science is constantly evolving and it is constantly going through all this peer review process and these additional studies build up around the studies that are released. Therefore, when scientists come up to a conclusion that they all agree upon, for example, that humans cause climate change or that vaccines do not cause autism, it's not just done in isolation. It's not just a few studies done in different labs, done by a few different groups. It's really different people all over the world, different research groups all over the world, and they're constantly challenged at the peer review process and then once they're in their journals to make sure that the results are being interpreted correctly. Science, therefore, does not happen in a vacuum. And I just personally feel like the laboratories that we did in school don't really reflect exactly this process that happens in science and how scientists conduct research. And this is one of the goals of this podcast is to make that process more transparent. Because graduate school really prepares you for this process, it prepares you on how to communicate to other scientists. So when we're giving talks, it is pretty much always directed at other scientists. We go to conferences and we present our work. Or when we write up our results, it's for these peer-reviewed publications, which other scientists are reading. The public isn't reading these. So we've been trained to communicate with other scientists and therefore not the general public. And you can see examples of our failings of being able to communicate with the public on some of these major issues like climate change and vaccines and the face mask issue right now. Evolution is another one. So scientists are now starting to really realize, really realize, I like that, the value of science communication. And many scientists are doing science communication on their own as a hobby. And even though we really should be incorporating science communication every day in our work, not a lot of institutions really reward that. So science communication has become really fun for some scientists and something they really enjoy. I joined Twitter, I think in 2010, and I really joined it at first for a networking tool and to promote my research. And it's really helped me in my career. If Even if you're not interested in science communication and you're becoming a scientist or are a scientist, I highly recommend that you join Twitter because it really helps out your career in terms of networking with other scientists, especially at conferences. But I also realized it was a really great tool to communicate with the public, and I had so much fun doing it go on social media, you'll see that there are so many scientists out there using different platforms, mostly Twitter and Instagram, to give people this direct connection to a scientist, which is quite amazing because when I was growing up, if you were to ask me about any scientist in my neighborhood or in just in my area, I wouldn't have known any. So this is so great and I just think it's super cool that people can directly 
reach out to scientists and talk to them. And it's also really important for children for choosing careers because there's a lot of research that shows that if children don't see people that look like themselves, they won't think that career option is for them. So for scientists, the stereotype is a white male and a lab coat. We tend to think of people like Einstein. We certainly don't think of females that frequently, and um, we don't think of people of color that frequently. So one of the reasons why I'm so passionate about doing a fancy scientist every Friday is because I really like breaking that stereotype and showing all of the diversity of different scientists of different scientists out there. Now it seems like there are a lot more scientists interested in doing science communication professionally as a career. When I was applying for jobs, I did come across different science communication positions and applied for them. But what I found from most of these positions is that they really wanted people who had communication degrees and the science, either they could be taught or that they would have like a science major is a bachelor's or something. But they really wanted communication experts, people who are experts at social media, rather than scientists. So people who had their master's or PhD were really amazing as scientists, but also good at social media. And what we talked about last week with Christina Lynn and YouTube, and what we're going to be talking about this upcoming week with Chris Cloney, is that there are some ways to become a professional science communicator without having to get an outside job. And that is exactly what I am doing. I've been doing this since February. I'm transitioning my position to be in science communication. And I learned so much from Chris Cloney, who is going to be on the podcast next week. And and he has done this. He has made a living out of science communication full time. So he is going to tell us about that. But I just wanted to introduce the subject and also just talk about um, some different things that you can do to turn this into a full time job. I have been blogging a really long time. I Again, I think since 2002 with my former lab mate on the Wildlife Snippets blog. But I always did this again to promote my research. And then a couple of years ago, I became more and more interested in social media and blogging. And I joined a blogging group here, the North Carolina um, Bloggers Network. And there was an event with other bloggers. I met them up and chatted and they actually made money with their blogs. And this was something that was completely new to me. I had no idea that you could make money off of a blog. I started looking into it more and listening to a lot of different entrepreneurial podcasts And I found that people actually make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, even millions of dollars a year with their blogs. Now, it's definitely not easy, but this was something that I was really excited by because I loved blogging so much and I just thought it was something that I could really have fun with and that also was really important because over the years, I... I initially went into wildlife biology because I cared so much about conservation and preserving the planet. 
But what I realized is that studying the animals does not always help their conservation. Really, so many conservation problems are caused by people, and we really need to change human behaviors and attitudes in order to make significant headway. So that's what I've transitioned my career uh, to. And to make money at blogging, there's, there's different ways that you can do it. The main way, or one of the most obvious ways, is through ad revenue. So you can get started with AdSense right away. I waited until I got ads. I did. I got ads with Mediavine, which is a company that you have to apply for, and you need at least twenty five thousand sessions. But they actually raised it to fifty. Now you need fifty. But I did it at twenty five thousand sessions, and. Now, when people visit my blog, I make money just having them read the articles, just having the ads there. I am really happy I made that goal because now I'm making passive income, which is awesome. But I have to say, I don't love the look of ads on my blog. So I am exploring other ways to make money through my blog. A similar way is the influencer route, which you don't need a blog for, but you do need some social media at least. And this is working with different companies to promote their products and they you can arrange to have a campaign with them to get paid a certain amount to either write a blog post about them or to promote them through your social media, or you can become an affiliate with them. And the way that affiliate status works is that you talk about a product that you really like, and then you get a portion of the the money for every product that is bought through your link. And this is at no additional cost to you. So a really popular one is Amazon. I am actually an Amazon affiliate, even though I don't love Amazon and I I do want to move away with it because I truly believe that people should shop local first. That being said, I know some people don't have the option. They might be in really rural areas or for, honestly, a lot of the products that I feature on Amazon are kind of strange products. Like, for example, one of the things I really like to promote is this wildlife professionals book and our statistics book, and you can't find them just anywhere. But anyway, so if people go to my Amazon link and if they buy anything off of Amazon through my link, I actually get a a commission from this. And again, at no additional cost to you. Some people make hundreds of thousands of dollars a year, I kid you not, from their affiliate links. I was listening to this one podcast and one of the, or the guy that they were interviewing, he makes his income off of bags. He's a bag expert. He reviews bags like laptop bags and backpacks and things like that. And people watch his YouTube videos, they visit his blog and they purchase his affiliate links and that's how he makes his money. And you have to be really genuine and you have to choose products that are actually good. You can't just you can't just willy-nilly do stuff and or, or say that you like this stuff, especially without using pro- the product. That's really bad. So I always make sure that it's genuinely a product I love and support. I don't like doing negative reviews. So if I do not talk about a product, that just means I, I don't love it. I only... I only promote stuff that I really like and that I use. 
And then the other ways that you can make money becoming a science communication expert as a business is by selling products or by selling yourself through public speaking. Public speaking was something that I am really interested in pursuing that I started to pursue, but it's been on hold since COVID. But I initially decided to go the product route. And as you may know, I am writing a book, which should be out next month in September 2020. And therefore, I'm creating physical products that you can purchase and then I make income. But you can also sell digital products. And that's something that I just started recently, too, with my course on becoming a wildlife biologist or how to find your your dream job in wildlife biology. And I am loving doing it. So I expect there will be more courses in the future. Again, my dream is really to inspire people to care about conservation, to care about animals. So I'm also developing programs for kids that they can do virtually, but they're doing outside. So it will be connected virtually and I'll give them activities virtually, but they're going to do them outside in their neighborhoods, in their backyards, or in natural areas around their house. So next week, Chris is going to give us some insight as to how he made a full-time career out of science communication. He's really an amazing example of this, and I hope to be where he is one day. I'm still just starting out, so I have not made much money or certainly enough money to live off of being a science communicator, but it's super cool what the possibilities are, and I know I'm going to be talking to you in the future saying that. I am a full-time science communicator, that I make a real salary, that I did it. So I just wanted to go over those different things if you're thinking about becoming a science communicator. And finally, what I really wanted to say is that if you are already blog or if you are already tweeting about your research, writing Instagram posts about your research, you should really highly consider starting a blog because you're already doing the work. I see so many people out there make these really long Twitter threads or they write paragraphs on their Instagram posts. And these are blog posts. You really only need just like 30, sorry, you really only need just like 300 words to have a blog post. You need more than 30 30 words. And you can just copy exactly what you write for your social media into a blog post. And the reason why you should do a blog is because I think historically people think about blogs being like a daily diary of what you did in the lab or what you did in the field, but really it's about putting information out there on the internet and Google is how pretty much all people find their information. Even in these really rural areas and developing countries, people do have smartphones and they use them. So you can just reach so many more people through Google than you can through social media. Additionally, this content lasts forever. If you think about a social media post, it eventually fades with time. If you look at my Instagram posts from 2014, those are my first ones, you are probably not going to scroll through thousands of posts to find those posts. And even if you search by hashtags, it's going to be at the bottom of the list because it was so long ago. Whereas if you were to change that into a blog post, 
and it had really relevant keywords, the topic was really important, and people were a lot of people were reading it, then you're going to come up high on Google, like on the first page or first few pages, and then more and more people are going to see it. So I really recommend if you are interested in science communication at all, to get started with blogging over social media, or in addition, do them at the same time, because it's really not any additional work. I am super excited to be on this journey, and I do know that there are several other science entrepreneurs out there. I don't know if anyone is quite doing it the way that I am doing it, but I am super excited to be an experiment and a guinea pig for this career, and I will keep you posted because science communication is oh so important. We need people to see us. We need people to hear our messages and to get to know and like us so that they'll they'll trust us when we have these really important messages to share that quite literally affect our health, our well-being, of course, the well-being and health and conservation of other species. This is some really important stuff here. So thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, this week, I don't have anything new on the blog and YouTube. I'm kind of slow because I've been working a lot on my Confusion to Clarity beta group that I was talking about. I am teaching them every week, so I need to come up with material, or I have the material, but I need to put it in a presentation form and design the exercises that I have for them. I also got my book edits back, so I am actually doing the final, final proofread and putting it into a Word document that is formatted for uh, Kindle KDP, Kindle Publishing something. It's it's self-publishing through Amazon. And I just want to say it is the coolest thing to be able to see my words in book format. It is just so exciting. And I know you guys are going to love this book. I am providing so much good stuff. Thank you guys so much for listening. And if you could please subscribe to my podcast so you don't miss an episode. And I would love you so much if you could rate it. That really helps other people find it. Let me know if you have any questions, comments. You can always find me at social media at The Fancy Scientist. Have an amazing day and be nice to each other and be nice to animals. Bye.